0: Good morning. Good morning, precious, beautiful saints of the Lord. I invite you to open your Bibles to the very first book of the Bible, in the second chapter of that book, this morning's text, is Genesis, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And now I invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and clo- closed up its place with fr- flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. We believe and affirm that your word is truth, and we are asking that you would sanctify us by the truth this morning. We're thankful, Lord Jesus Christ, that you loved your church such that you laid down your life for her. We're thankful that by your spirit you have caused us to see you and to respond to you appropriately, which is faith and trust and obedience to your ways and your commands. Lord, we're asking right now that you would teach us and encourage us and help us as we consider marriage this morning. Lord, it's our prayer that you would glorify your name in the marriages of this church. Help us to grow and our desire to honor you in the context of our marriages. Help us to see the vital importance of acknowledging you in the context of marriage. Help husbands and wives to fulfill the roles that you have ordained for them in biblical marriage. Help husbands to love their wives. Help wives to submit to and respect their husbands. And bless them with an ever increasing one fleshness for your glory, our good, and the well being of those under our influence. Teach us now by your Spirit through your word and change us as a result of the proclamation of truth this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28, vaguely introduced to us the concept of marriage. Remember Genesis 1 beginning at verse 27 says, so God created man in in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And now here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, we get a zoomed in view, if you will, and we see the intimate revelation of God's institution of marriage. Genesis 1 gives us the general idea, but Genesis 2 specifies marriage for us. And this text is what I like to call the quintessential passage on marriage in all of the Bible. If you want to do marriage well, if you want to do marriage right, if you want to do marriage in a way that honors the Lord, then you must know, believe, and apply this text. Some might argue that this text doesn't have much meaning for us today. It doesn't bear that much on marriage. Why? Because it occurs before the fall of humankind in Genesis 3. This is the first marriage and the last marriage to occur between two unsinful people. Can you imagine, just for a moment, marriage without sin? You all say, no, I can't imagine that. This is that first marriage. That being said, let it be known that this passage has everything— Everything to do with marriage today. It says everything to do with marriage today and everything to do with marriage every other time that marriage has taken or will take place. The word of God will not allow us to reject the content of this passage because it occurred before the fall. Do you realize that this passage is the passage that both Jesus and the New Testament writers most often refer to? either explicitly or implicitly when addressing the nature and purpose of marriage as a rule of thumb when Jesus or New Testament writer quotes or alludes to a passage of the Old Testament we are right to assume that he had the entire context of that passage in mind and so when we see Genesis 2:24 quoted repeatedly in the New Testament or when we see something from Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25 mentioned in the New Testament, then we do well to realize that the person referencing this passage is very much aware of the first marriage ceremony that takes place in the whole of the passage. Listen to the places in the New Testament that refers to Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. We see it in Matthew 19, Jesus speaking. We see it in Mark chapter 10, again, Jesus speaking. We see it in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, and 1 Timothy chapter 2. And from such passages, we realize that Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 through 25 is about marriage both before and after the fall. From such passages, we see that God unites one man and one woman in marriage as he defines it. From such passages, we realize that what God has joined together, let not man separate. From such passages, we realize that marriage is ultimately not about the man and the woman in that marriage. But rather, it is primarily about the God who brought them together. For marriage is a picture of Christ and his union with the church, who is his bride, Let me say it again. Beloved, believe this. Marriage is primarily about God. He created it, he defines it, and he is glorified when we know and live in light of his revealed will for marriage. I can't emphasize it enough. We must get this passage right we must get this passage right and i don't mean that we need that we merely need to intellectually grasp the content of this passage i don't mean that we read this passage and you say oh i've been taught this before and i've heard this before and i i know this what i mean is that we must receive and believe and increasingly appreciate and live in light of the context of this passage. If you are married or if you want to be married, then this text is for you. If you live with people who are married, then this text is for you. If you have friends and family members who are married, then this text is for you. This text is for absolutely everyone. There is no one who will not benefit from this text this morning if they believe and receive the truths therein. in. And it's my prayer that by the grace and mercy of our great God, that the saints of this local church and that everyone in my hearing would believe and receive everything in and about this glorious text. We need this text. May God help us. This brings us to the main idea. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, we observe five markers of God's help to man in marriage so that we might truly enjoy God's precious gift of marriage unto his glory for our good and for the benefit of those under our influence. And we'll walk through those five markers. First, we'll see God's plan of help in verse 18. Then we'll see God's path to help in verses 19 and 20. Then we'll see God's provision of help in verses 21 through 23 Then God's pattern in verse 24, and God's product in verse 25. Begin with me, please, with the first marker, God's plan of help in verse 18. Once again, the text reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Immediately, we are met with a problem in this text. So far as we've preached our way through Genesis, we've grown accustomed to looking, for, to God looking upon His creation and declaring what? It was good. It was good. It was good. But now God declares something else. For the very first time, God says, It is not good. This phrase invites us to pay very close attention what follows. Specifically, it is not good that the man should be alone. This is the problem that's presented to us. And I want to, just on the basis of this first line, encourage the merry men in our congregation. Don't fall into the, into the temptation, brothers, of thinking that things would be better if you could just go back to your former single life. Some of you are like, psh, that was terrible. I'm not tempted by that at all. (laughs) But some of us sometimes are tempted to believe the lies. It It was easier. I was more comfortable. I enjoyed life more when I was a single man. You have to take that up with God, because it's God who says it is not good for the man to be alone. Yes, there's a time for singleness, and yes, there's the gift of singleness. That said, the general norm is that it's not good for man to be alone. And I can attest, it's it's not good for Kenny to be alone. Part of being created in the image of God is that we are made for intimate relationship. The holy, blessed Trinity eternally exists as three persons doing what? Intimately relating to one another as God. Therefore, bearing his image, we are to exist in intimate relationship also. There's no relationship outside of biblical marriage that can be better seen as a reflection of God other than marriage. So it's not good for the man to be alone. It is God himself who identifies this problem. But how many of you know that for every problem, God has a plan? Can I get an amen? God knows that it is not good for man to be alone, and God's plan is that man will not remain alone. Somebody say hallelujah. I'm I'm excited about this. Thank you, Lord. God reveals his plan saying, I will make him a helper fit for him. God is the one who plans to take action for the well-being of this lonely man. And this gift to man that God is planning to make is an unmerited gift. At this point, man doesn't even realize how alone he is, but God does. And so God says he's going to make him a helper. The term helper in this context is a word that speaks of a practical partner to assist man. The helper is God's arrangement to supply something lacking in man. It is not good for man to be alone because man was never meant to be alone. And man can't do what God has called him to do without the assistance of another. I want to humbly ask, brothers, do you realize that you need help. You don't have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. We need help. And God provides a practical partner to assist you in the form of wife. She is your helper. She is your practical partner. She's not to be lorded over in the sense of do whatever I say whenever I want. But no, she's to come alongside you and yes, you are her lord in one sense. You are head over her. But God says you need her help. So receive her help, men. May we humbly and gratefully accept the help of our beloved wives. Sisters, do you realize that your husband needs help? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm well aware. (laughs) But listen to me. Your husband doesn't need nagged. He doesn't need reminded of all of his shortcomings. He's well aware of them. He he doesn't need to be slandered or, or gossiped about. Your husband needs your respectful, honest, gracious, loving, and encouraging help. And you are his helper. Do you realize that God has placed upon you, sister, wife, the glorious role of being his primary practical helper in terms of human relationship? What a role. What a task. Receive and accept that role and that task. The head must humbly accept the helper. The helper must humbly respect her head. And both the head and the helper must fix their eyes on the one who made a helper for man. But this isn't just any kind of help. This is a helper that is fit for him. The phrase fit for him could be translated as a corresponding counterpart. The helper is opposite from the man in one sense yet suitable for the man in another sense. When we hear the phrase opposites attract, we should think of this phrase. Man is not for man. Woman is not for woman. Rather, woman is for man. And if the term helper speaks of a practical partner, then the phrase fit for him speaks of an intimate companion. I like to think of this as a two-piece jigsaw puzzle. Each piece, one man and one woman, although they have different contours and different reflections, they, they fit together to make the whole. You cannot take a piece from one puzzle and try to jam it together with a piece from another puzzle to make a new puzzle. That's not an option. It's one man and one woman that are to come together under the puzzle maker's design to portray the intended beauty of God's plan in marriage. Beloved, God's plan to fix the problem, if you will, is to make man a helper fit for him. However, at this point, God is aware, but man is not aware. This brings us to God's path to help in verses 19 through 20. We see that God brings every animal of the field and every bird of the air to the man so that the man might name them. The man naming the animals implies a derived authority from God. God is the only sovereign king, amen? Yet he makes man in his image to act as a mediator on his behalf and to rule the earth. So man's authority to name God's creatures is derivative of God's authority. It's important for us to note that the man is the one who is naming the animals because later the man will name the woman. And what he names her is astounding. We'll get to that when we get there. But even here, we see imprints of God's design in marriage. Man is naming the animals before the creation of woman, the woman is to come under the headship of her man to help her fulfill God's orders. Nevertheless, man surveys and names the animals as God brings them before him. And I have no idea how long this process would have taken. And thankfully, that's not the point of this passage. But just for a moment, try to imagine with me, if you will, this glorious scene. One By one, the man beholds the beauty of God's animals and the beauty of God's creation. God is in fellowship with man and he presents to the man the creatures and the man names the creatures. I don't know about you, but I still get excited to go to the zoo I get even more excited when I see an animal in their natural habitat. But this, this is unfathomable. And a day is coming, beloved, when we will behold God's new creation in a similar fashion. But for now, I digress. As the man sees the last of the animals coming and as he names the final animal, He has a realization. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Presumably, Adam observes pairs of animals, but Adam is unpaired. The God-given task of naming the animals achieves at least two purposes. The first is obvious, animals became identifiable by name. But the second one is that as a result of naming the animals, Adam now knows that he is alone in the sense that he had no practical partner, in the sense that he had no corresponding counterpart. And in this way, the naming of the animals is God's path for Adam to help. For what God knew in verse 18, now Adam knows by the end of verse 20. And this leads to God's provision of hope in verses twenty-one through twenty-three. Again, the text reads: So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he t- slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, "This is that last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken." out of man. As Adam comes to the realization that he's alone, it is God who steps in to take action. One of the reasons I love this text is because it's such a God-centered text. God is the one who provides actively and intimately provides for man's need. God caused the man to sleep. And as he slept, God took one of his ribs, or more accurately, God took from one of his sides, and God took bone and flesh from man, and then he covered Adam's side with flesh. And from the side that was taken from Adam, God made a woman. What a beautiful reality. The Hebrew word translated made in verse 22 it is different from the word "make" that we saw in verse 18. The, the term in verse 22 is literally "built." The idea is that God fashioned, or that He crafted, or that He custom made, or specially developed Adam's side into a woman. This is a careful work of God and a precious gift from God to the man. From, God, from man, God built a woman for man. And God brought the woman to the man. In other words, God presented and unveiled the woman to the man. If you ever wondered where the customs of the father delivering the bride to the groom and the unveiling of the bride came from, it's rooted in this text. God makes for man... And presents man with the incredible gift of a wife. And Adam responds, This at last is bone of my blo- bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This can literally be translated, wow, woo, we. Now that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Adam is absolutely floored. He, he's in awe. What a glorious sight. And there's a sense of longing that has now been fulfilled. He says this at last. As he named all the animals and found no helper fit for him. A longing developed. Now that longing is fulfilled. This at last. He says, This woman is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This phrase helps us to see that it is truly from the side of man, both bone and flesh, that she was taken. It is from deep within Adam that God took and fashioned or crafted or custom built this woman. And Adam's authoritative role as head is displayed. When he names the woman, he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." Once again, naming implies authority, yet what he names her implies union, equality of value, worth and nature. In the Hebrew, there is wordplay that's occurring. It actually comes through in our English terms as well, man and woman. Remember that Adam was formed from the ground. We saw that back in chapter 2, verse 7. And the word for ground in the Hebrew is Adamah, And from Adamah we get the term Adam in 2.20, the proper name of the first man. Or a general term that speaks of mankind. There's another Hebrew term for man, and it's the term Ish. And what Adam does is he says, we shall call her Isha, for she was taken from Ish. The Hebrew Hebrew terms sound alike, but nevertheless, they're different terms. Literarily, these terms convey a sense of unity and diversity between man and woman. Man names woman, which implies man's authority, but in the name that he gives to woman, he displays that there's no superiority complex. He understands and appreciates that what is presented to him, what is placed before him, what is unveiled for him, is an amazing gift that God has given him. Brothers, I simply want to encourage you to respond to your wife as Adam did to his. We all have that moment on our wedding day, do we not? You're standing there with a few of your buddies, and you're so excited. Maybe a little nervous, depending on how the relationship with the in-laws are. (laughs) But you're excited, because after that day, that woman, that, that fiance is gonna be your wife. And as the doors open up, she walks in. And you say exactly what Adam said. Wow woo we know that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and you love it. And a week goes on, and maybe a year goes on. Brothers, that's the same as it should be today. Your love for your wife is to grow over the years. You're supposed to wake up on Saturday morning, her hair is all messy, no makeup on, and you're supposed to say, that's still what I'm talking about. (laughs) Brothers love and appreciate God's gift that he's given you and your wife. Serve her and love her and cherish her and appreciate her and cultivate an atmosphere wherein she can flourish. Behold her as God's precious gift. This brings us to God's pattern of help in verse 24. The text reads, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I call this verse the leave, cleave, weave, and conceive verse. And I admit I'm borrowing the conceive idea from Genesis 128, where it's explicitly mentioned, but weaving does imply conceiving. Man is to leave his parents and to cleave to and weave with his wife, and she is to conceive children. This is God's pattern of help in marriage. The therefore, at the beginning of verse 24, is what indicates to us that the the marriage paradigm has been set. Therefore, it says, Or in other words, that is because God made woman for man that what follows is going to be the general standard of life for humankind. A man is to leave his parents. The idea of leaving is not necessarily in the sense of the westernized Westernized society today wherein we often hear, once my kid turns 18, they're out of here. That's not necessarily What's meant here? What is meant here? It's the sense that a new family is established at marriage. The husband becomes the head of his wife. Neither the husband nor the wife are under the headship of their parents anymore. I have to be careful here. I don't want anyone to mishear me. You are... For as long as you live and as long as your parents are living, to honor your father and mother. But you're not to be a mama's boy any longer. You are to practice and exercise biblical headship over your family. A man is to leave his parents. A man is to hold fast to, or to stick to, or to cleave to, or to cling to his wife. Note well that a man and a woman is what's being spoken of here. It's one man, not many, clings to one woman, not many. This passage necessitates heterosexual monogamy in marriage. This passage tells us that a man needs the right person, which would be a woman, to be married. This passage also tells us that a man needs the right sphere, a covenant, to be married. Holding fast to or clinging to is language of covenantal commitment. My favorite passage to kind of color what we see here in Genesis 2 is in Joshua 23. Turn there with me for a moment if you would. We're going to see in Joshua 23, the same word being used that we saw in Genesis 2 for cling to or hold fast to. Genesis 23, I'm sorry, Joshua 23, verse 6. Let's begin there. This is the Lord speaking, and he says in verse 6, therefore... Be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. Verse 8. But, strong adversative, you shall cling to the Lord, your God, just as you have done to this day. This passage is helpful when we think about the concept of clinging to your wife. The idea is that there might be some other things in life that you're tempted to cling to, if you will. There might be some things out there that you're... Naturally drawn to. But you are not to cling to any other woman other than the woman that God gave you. You are to hang to her, to stick to her, to cleave to her, to hold on to her and her alone. You see in Joshua 23, that's pretty much what the Lord is saying. There's some things in those nations that you might be tempted by. There's some things in those nations that might look appealing to your eye. But let me tell you right now, it's not going to go well for you if you look and then you go to those things in those nations. Rather, cling to me, the Lord. Brothers, there are some things that are out there. And for a moment, they might seem appealing to you. They might bring about a little feeling in your heart. But if you look and then go, you will not be satisfied. You are to be intoxicated, men. Be intoxicated. Be overwhelmed by one woman and one woman alone. That woman is your wife. This passage in Joshua. Tells us that there's an intensity, that there's a, a fervor, that there's a rigor, that there's a passion in clinging to our wives. It takes work, men. It takes dedication. It takes saying no to the things that we're supposed to say no to and yes to the Lord in our wives. And if you don't have a wife, young brothers, let me encourage you. You must cultivate this fervor now. You must cultivate this fervor in clinging to your purity now so that if and when the Lord blesses you with a precious wife, you will be primed to intensely cling to her. A man is to hold fast to his wife. A man and a woman are to become one flesh in marriage. One flesh is the language of solidarity. It's the language of unity, which is established in marriage vows, consummated in physical union, developed in relationship, manifested in offspring, and secured by the grace of God. Practically speaking, a one flesh union expresses itself in terms of we and our, rather than in terms of I and me and my and he and she and his and hers and him and her. In other words, one fleshness, if you will, prioritizes the unity of two persons in a marriage over the individuality of each person in that marriage. For what we've studied so far, I offer the following definition of marriage. Marriage is God's gift of one woman, a female, to one man, a male, to be his practical helper and corresponding counterpart in unique relationship with one another. And this relationship is a spiritual, intimate, exclusive, monogamous, lifelong, covenantal union wherein a new family is established. One more time. Marriage is God's gift of one woman, a female, to one man, a male, to be his practical helper and corresponding counterpart. In in unique relationship with one another, and this relationship is a spiritual, intimate, exclusive, Monogamous, lifelong covenantal union wherein a new family is established. This is God's pattern of help in marriage. And this is what we see in the very first marriage. This brings us to God's product of help in verse 25. The text says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This last verse indicates that God's product of help help, was a perfect marriage. And in this perfect marriage, the man and the woman were at ease with one another. They were free to enjoy each other. There was no fear. There was no sinful self-awareness. Rather, they were naked and pure free to enjoy one another and enjoy God. They were in fellowship with one another and at peace with one another before the very presence of God himself. The fall in Genesis 3 will fracture God's product of help and marriage. And I say fracture purposefully. Not destroy, but fracture. Dare I say that in Christ, by the grace of God, that we retain a measure of the relationship that Adam and Eve experienced? Even more can I dare to say that we can grow in that relationship? Beloved, as new creatures in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can increasingly grow the relationship of our marriage. We can grow to be at ease more and more with our spouse. We can grow to enjoy our spouses more freely. But listen carefully. Let it be known that such growth requires genuine faith, genuine faith in and fear of the Lord. Let it be known that such growth requires a joyful acceptance of God's ordained roles in marriage. Let it be known that such growth requires humility and love and respect. Let it be known that such growth requires rigorous work. But above all, let it be known that such growth is enabled by God, commanded by God, and delighted in by God. For marriage is the only relationship that refers to Christ and the church. So husbands, please, Dear brothers, delight in your wife and glorify God. Sisters, please, dear sisters, delight in your husband and glorify God. Beloved, increasingly prioritize God's gift Of precious marriage. In conclusion, I simply want to read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for the precious gift of marriage. We specifically thank you for placing people in our lives that increasingly prioritize marriage according to your word and set an example for us. I'm thankful for the many blessings that we see with godly marriages in the context of Redeem South Bay. Yet there is no marriage That is what it ought to be. For you have enabled us to grow ever increasingly until we see you face to face in the relationship of marriage such that you might increasingly be on display for a watching world. And Lord, we know that there are some who are challenged in our midst. Some who are facing severe challenges even now in the context of their marriage. Yet, Lord, we declare and believe that your grace is sufficient. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would help each and every one of us. Wherever we're at in the context of our marriage or if we will futurely be married, we're asking that you would help us to see you above all else, to receive the truth of your word and to live in light of what your word says regarding marriage. We're asking that you might help. We're asking that you might humble. We're asking that you might provide grace and mercy. We're asking that you might strengthen and encourage the husbands and wives and future husbands and wives of this church. Lord, would you please, for your glory's sake and for the well-being of your precious people, glorify your name in each marriage of this church. We love you because you first loved us. We live for you because you died for us. Help us to do this in our marriages. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.